I'm Prentice Hemphill, and this is Finding Our Way. So when we were talking about starting this podcast, I knew that I wanted to start with the body. I'm someone that has studied somatics and embodiment for the last 10 years, so I always want to start with the body. It's important especially for me to interrupt the Western paradigm that our bodies are only these fleshy encasements that carry our brains around. They are shaped, they are impacted, they are molded, they are loved. They are the place where our stories reside. And for most of us, figuring out how to be in our bodies actually requires a journey not only of acceptance, but one of deep love. A love that allows and revels in the sensations, the textures, the experiences of these lives and these bodies. All of these bodies, these aging bodies, these queer bodies, these disabled, these fat bodies, these trans bodies, these black and brown bodies, these bodies that if we weren't so intent on controlling them, might actually teach us about the vastness of creation. The person that has really inspired me around how we do this love is Sonia Renee Taylor. What Sonia Renee Taylor does for us is really break down to the level of science, how we get to this kind of self-love practice and what it really promises to shift in our relationships and our lives. Radical self-love, as she teaches it, isn't just a nice phrase. It's a practice. It's a commitment at the very center of life. I'm really, really excited to have Sonia on as our first guest, y'all. In addition to being the author of The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love, Sonia has just been transmitting with so much clarity exactly what we need to know in this moment about anti-Blackness and white supremacy. This conversation with Sonia helped me understand the connection between how we feel in and about our bodies and the possibility of a future rooted in love. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Sonia. It's good to be with you today. Hi, Prentice. I'm glad we worked it out. (laughs) (laughs) Some technical difficulties to start. Um, So I wanted to just give a little bit of background about this podcast. So the intention of it is really to talk to people who have something to tell us or share with us about what a vision for a future could be. Um, Mm. This isn't a podcast, we say kind of in the description, this isn't a podcast about answers. It's a podcast about questions. It's a podcast where people can share insight. Um, but this is a, a a place where we can kind of make and create and envision a future that is more just, that has more space for us, all of us. So um, that's why we called it Finding Our Way. And I wanted to start with you for a couple reasons. And one is that as a somatics practitioner, I wanted to start with the body. I wanted to ground there. And I thought, who more brilliantly articulates why begin with the body when we're talking about transformation other than you. And I wanted to talk to you because I I feel like in this moment we're in, which I hope that you can um, shed some light on, there's really not anyone that I see so clearly articulating, um, shining a light on our internal landscape, shining a light on um, the challenges that we have internally and together, shining a light on possibility. I I think there's no one doing it quite the way you are. 
in this moment. Mm. And so I wanted to begin this journey, this podcast journey, with talking to you. Because mm. of well, those thank reasons. Thank you. I'm super honored. <laughs> super honored. Thank you. We're right. so, so honored. So uh, I, I think it's a good place to start with a question of how would you describe where we are right now? Mm. Where are we right now? Um, I've been talking a lot about, I feel like we're at a merger of a few very specific things. I think that metaphorically, the idea of being in a global pandemic um, is the idea of being in a period of time where energetically things spread incredibly fast. Mm that we are in a time of rapid movement, but not in the materials, like in the, you know, not on the 3D, on the 4D and on the 5D, right? And in, in the things that we cannot see moving very, very quickly. I mean, we're in a time of infection, right? And so for me, the question is, what do we want to spread? If we know we're in a time of infection, if we know we're in a time where things are contagious. I was talking recently about, I can't remember what I was, I was, I was having a conversation with a friend, with a couple of friends. And I was talking about how in The Body is Not an Apology, chapter, whatever, the last chapter, there are these 10 practical tools. Mm-hmm. And number nine is the second most practical, most important tool, and it's being community. But in this conversation of being in community, I talk about, I talk, I, you know, I'm framing the conversation around body shame, but I'm talking about it as a, as a function of the epidemiological triad, right? Which, which requires a pathogen, requires a host and requires a mode of transmission, right? Mm. And that we're in this moment where you know, we as humans operate as the host. We contain these ideas, these these beliefs, these ways of being, these illusions. They all live inside of us. Those things are also the pathogens, right? They are the the belief in disconnection, the belief in the other, the um, white supremacist delusion as the way of moving through the world. These are all the pathogens. You know, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, ableism, name them all. Those are the pathogens, or you know, more succinctly the ladder of bodily hierarchy is the mm-hmm. pathogen, right? And the, you know, modes of transmission are all the things that involve communication, right? So all of our media, but also our conversations, our way we're in dialogue with each other. Transmission is also the way we're in dialogue with ourselves. And what's amazing about the epidemiological triad is you only need to break one of those rungs for the pathogen to stop spreading. You only mm. need to figure out one. What's amazing is we're in a time where we can disrupt all of them. We could we can disrupt how we're communicating. We can disrupt the choice to be the host, which means to like carry all these ideas uninterrogated in secrecy and shame. And we are actively trying to dismantle some of the pathogens, like defund the police is an active choice to disrupt a pathogen. So I think we're in this moment of mass contagion (laughs) and that we have some specific things that should we be able to vision into we can spread in a totally different way that 
is incredible. Um, all of that is incredible. And there's so many ways that I want to go with that. And before we kind of get to um, the kind of breaking down what it is we could spread right now. Yeah. Um, you listed a number of pathogens there that I think are really important to, to just name and feel. Um, mm-hmm. And you talked about this, this ladder, this ladder of hierarchy. And I, I wonder if there's anything more that you're willing to kind of share about what that is and how it shows up between us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, there's this really concrete way of, you know, all of the things that put us in a relationship of greater than or less than with other human beings is the ladder of hierarchy. And all the systems that reinforce and hold that experience of greater than or less than all represent that ladder. And so in a Western industrialized, you know, imperialist, colonialist construct, the top of that ladder is white, able-bodied, cis, heterosexual masculinity. It's the top of the ladder. And consequently, somewhere at the bottom of the ladder is blackness. And then there's all these ways in which folks are scurrying up and down the ladder. That ladder is also, you know, am I able-bodied? Is that ladder also, you know, am I thin versus fat? Am I um, young versus old? What, you know, am I straight? All of the other, what we call at the body is not an apology, default bodies, bodies that, that we use to stand in for human. When I say, oh, a human, we have an imagination about what that human's body looks like. All the things that are the default imagination of that human body are the default system. They are the, the rungs on that ladder. And so the most powerful way to destroy the ladder is to destroy the ladder inside yourself, mm-hmm. is to look at the ways in which you, we have embodied the tenets of this ladder. How do I engage in a relationship of comparison throughout my life? In destroying the ladder uh, inside of ourselves, it's about looking at where does the system live inside of me? Where mm-hmm. does the system of, of comparison live inside of me? How, do I, how am I judging myself, judging my own being based on this hierarchy? Because the thing that makes the, the ladder real is our attempt to continue to climb it. That is what validates and, and materializes and operationalizes the ladder. So when we look at, oh, I'm bought into this, I'm bought into thinness, I'm bought into cis sexism. I'm bought into able-bodiedness. I'm, I've not even explored, you know, my relationship to queer phobia or transphobia. All of those things we're not looking at um, reaffirm the foundations of the ladder and keep them moving. So the first place is how do I destroy the ladder in myself? How do I see the ladder? Which is the first step. I got to see the ladder. I got to be willing to look at the ladder. And then I got to be willing to question all of the places where the ladder is operating. I think that's step one. There's something you just said that is really just blowing my mind, which is um, about how comparison is a place to look for the ways in which you've embodied the ladder. Yeah. When you're comparing yourself to someone else, it's like, how am I, how have I embodied a hierarchy where there can 
only be one or I have to figure out where this person goes in relationship to me. That is so insightful and helpful and, and tracking how we actually embody these things. That's amazing. Yeah. It's such an easy, I mean, for me, I find it to be like an easy way to notice it. It's like, Oh, right. I am making my identity only valid in relationship to however I situate your identity. Right. And it's not a relationship of interdependence. It's a relationship of one upmanship, right? It's either I'm less than or greater than you. Not that we are in a co-creation of humanity. That's the distinction. When, I, when am I trying to be, when am I either making myself less than you or making myself greater than you rather than, rather than making myself you, not the other, right? Not, mm. a, not a relationship of the other, a relationship of, of who, the external as a reflection of the self. Okay, Sonia. All right. I I meditated before I talked to you today. (laughs) I see that you did that. And so let me just get myself together and prepared for what is happening. I got it. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit more? um, And I keep kind of keeping us from getting to the visionary part, because I really want to spend some time there on the, Mm -hmm. what it makes possible and how we move through it. But I also want to talk about the cost on our bodies. And I, I, what is the cost when we're in that comparison or we're in that ladder? Because I think some folks can be like, once I just get to this level of the ladder, it's going to be all good. Or as long as I can see somebody else <laughs> below me on a rung, then I'm doing good. That's right. a way to affirm that I'm okay. So I, I guess what's the cost yeah. to us individually, the cost to our relationships, the cost to our visioning? What's the mm-hmm. cost there? It's such a, you know, that that idea that like once I get to that point, I'll be good it's such a lie. It's such a lie. So the not, I mean, what's, what's wild about the ladder is it's actually just a hamster wheel. It's just so (laughs) high up that you can't see how it's just going to bring you back down. Right. It's, it's like, I'm ascending, I'm ascending, I'm ascending. And then you're at the top and then you're on your way back down because that is the structure. There's a reason. So I use one of the stats in this workshop that I do. Um, that's about the rate of, um, of the increased rate of suicide amongst white men above the age of 50, where Mm -hmm. it, where the rate of suicide increased, nearly doubled. And, you know, and, and one of the things I'm always asking in the workshop is, so why are, why do white men start killing themselves at disproportionate numbers when they age? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and folks are often sort of grappling with it, but when they really sit with it, it's like, right, because, over 50, you start to lose all the externalized things that it is that the world said made you worthy, right? right. Like sexual virility, economic attainment, you know, like able-bodiedness, all of these externalized markers of whether or not you are enough begin to drop you down the rung, drop you down the ladder. So the cost is always the inescapable whole there's a song from and she used to be a a christian artist and then she came out and now i don't know what she's singing uh her name is jennifer (laughs) nash and there's a there's a song that she used to sing um and it was uh and it's it's just called when nothing satisfies you Mm -hmm. and that is that is the title song of what it costs to be on this ladder 
is that yes. there it be, creates a bottomless pit of disconnection, of disharmony, of never feeling like you could get everything and you would still feel like it wasn't enough, which yes. is why rich white men over the age of 50 are killing themselves because they got everything and it still didn't fix the soul hole inside of mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And that soul hole looks like being, you know, it, it looks like being in a room full of people and feeling completely alone. It looks like mm-hmm. having someone who loves you so much and is pouring so much love into you. And it's a sieve. It, 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 you can't ever actually feel it. It looks like never actually living into your dreams. It looks like the job you haven't quit, although you hate it and you've been in it for 15 years. It looks like mm-hmm. the relationship you haven't left, even though it does not give you what it is that you need anymore. Mm-hmm. It looks like, you know, it looks like all the ways that we settle all the ways that we settle for what is less than what our heart's desire is. Yes. Whether that be in our emotional self or whether that be in the real world. When millions of people got out of their house in the middle of a pandemic to say, we're not doing this shit no more. Mm-hmm. That was getting off the ladder. Yeah. That was like, Oh, this, this thing where we are at the bottom and you literally get to stand on our necks must fall yes right and so when we so the opposite of that is to allow in the most metaphorical and literal sense to allow all of history and life to continue to stand on your neck Mm -hmm. so i have a i have a question for you because i i feel like one of the things early on when um, Black Lives Matter started and we were organizing in the streets. And um, one thing when I would be in actions, be in uprisings, I would reflect on was how we were stepping outside of the white gaze and allowing for a more full range of Black emotionality. We were allowing our grief to be there, yeah. we're allowing our rage to be there. And that's uh, those spaces just allowed for us to stretch into more than what the latter tells us is okay for us to feel or act or do. Mm-hmm. So that is one piece. But then I have a question about how do we then kind of troubling that some is that sometimes we can have this idea that, that our suffering builds character. Cause I do mm. feel very much like what I have experienced as a gender nonconforming person, as a black person raised in the South, poor, all of that, it has deeply shaped me. And because I didn't get reflections in the world that I existed was okay. All of these things I cultivated an inner life, an inner self, a substantive self that I now can rest into. But I also want to suffering doesn't necessarily make you have that kind of soul density. I'll call it. Yeah. Yes. Um, it doesn't have to. So what I is it that, that we do, soul density, what is it that we do that turns that into something meaningful? What is it that we do or what is mm. it that maybe we as black people know how to do that has turned that into? Yeah. yeah. So something. first of all, you trademark soul density. That's the bomb. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes soul density. Yes. Uh, that's an album. It's a book. There's a whole bunch of things. I my Capricorn is like, let's product it, monetize it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
yeah, this has been, this, this started as a conversation a few days ago that I see just wants to keep rolling out in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some inevitable suffering, right? Like as, mm-hmm. as Buddhist mm-hmm. tenants tell us, right? That suffering is life in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. There are always be things that are painful. And so, because, so if suffering builds resilience, we don't have to add to it, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's nothing <laughs> in life, just lifing without any of the latter, yes. we'll give you that, you know, yes. like we'll give yes. you that. The loss, the loss of my mother was going to give me some thing that I had to anchor into deeper mm-hmm. than what I could understand in the material world to move me through that moment. I didn't have to do nothing special. We didn't need white supremacist, hetero, capitalist, ableist, patriarchy to assist in that. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. going to come through. So I think that the idea of like suffering as needed is how we like try to make sense of all the extra suffering we add on top of suffering, the suffering extra. someday we seem to want to make. Um, but the other thing that feels even more potent to me right now is that the thing in us that withstands suffering predates us. It was mm-hmm. already in existence and it has always been, which is what allows us to be able to move through suffering. I think about it, you know, I'm like, we keep coming to this conversation, folks saying like um, black joy as resistance, right? My friend Jill Bates sort of troubled that notion the other day and it's been with me is that black joy, to say black joy as resistance is to put black joy in relationship to resistance. And what it does is it erases the fact that black joy always has been, always will be, cannot be interrupted. It just is. Yes. It's isness. And so it's not in, it, it, it is not as resistance. We don't do it to resist. We do it because it cannot be contained. And it happens to be that it serves that our joy, the fullness of our joy is an act of resistance, but it's mm-hmm. not a thing we leverage against resistance because our joy is actually unconcerned with suffering. Our joy has already withstood suffering for eons. And so it's the sun. The sun don't need, the sun ain't like, I'm going to shine today because Sonya cold. That's not mm-hmm. at all <laughs> how the sun operates. The sun was like, I'm going to shine today because I shine. You That's just right. so happen to be blessed enough to catch these rays, right? That's right. The joy that survived black people through chattel slavery didn't survive black people because they were like, we're going to have some joy and it's going to upset masses. No, it was like, we're going to have some joy. It just so happens that the more we're in our joy, the more disruptive it is to this system. Mm -hmm. So our suffering is, we don't need to create any externalized suffering. What, What is powerful is when we create, when we harness the full power of our joy, because it disrupts the suffering that is man-made. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 I love that. Um, ooh. Tell me about radical self-love. Hmm. What does it have to do with where we're going? Everything. If we plan on going anywhere, it really means we went somewhere. It better be with radical self-love. Otherwise, it's a round trip ticket. <laughs> right back to where we are. <laughs> So 
So if we want a one-way ticket, we're going to have to take that with radical self-love. If we want a round-trip ticket where we end up where we are, we'll build it on what we've been building it on, right? And so, mm-hmm. I mean, radical self-love is, is you know, there are so many synonyms for it. It is Black joy. It is that mm-hmm. which is unstoppable, unquenchable, always present, always existent, always providing for us, even when we aren't tapped into it. But it is indeed the foundation upon which to build any lasting structure because it's the foundation that sits on source, mm-hmm. right? So if, if I got to go every place else to figure out how to get the thing I need to sustain the structure, I'm, I have built an unsustainable thing. I've built, mm. you know, like, and we can, we can put this, you know, we can put this into the, you know, sort of eco biodiversity climate change conversation, right? Like if you're building things where you got to go extract all the stuff that you need to make it stand, it's clearly not a thing that is sustainable. It's not a thing that can last. Radical self-love just lasts because it is source, because love is source, because we came from love, we will return into love. It is the energy that is of creation. Mm -hmm. So if I am tapped into the energy that is of creation that made me, that thought so much of itself to make me and an ocean and stars and tulips, mm-hmm. whatever that is, yes, build on that. <laughs> Why would you build any place else, right? And that if it, and that if whatever that is thought so much of me to make me and oceans and stars and tulips, then that is me. Then that, then I am that. That is what radical self-love is. And so in the, it is the world without the ladder. Yes. Because the ladder was only built because we built on something that wasn't source. So we've been out in the world trying to extract our value, extract our worthiness, extract our power and resource and our experience of enoughness. When I am connected to that which created me, that which allows me to be present here today in this body, mm-hmm. that is, I don't have to extract anything to be connected to the inherent divinity of that. I don't have to, mm-hmm. I don't have to go get that no place. I don't have to decide that, that uh, I am greater or less than you in mm-hmm. that framework. So that is why that framework is necessary for where we're going. Because it's the thing that keeps us from not having to rebuild the ladder. Yes, yes. So when I read The Body is Not an Apology, it felt like something was washing over me. Like there was a a way that through my work in somatics embodiment, I know how to inhabit and be in my body. But you were asking for another level of engagement, another, another level of experience in my body that... Um, I had to really sit with for some time and understand it. And I, my question to you, a question that I was carrying with me through the book and that I see so much in how you are as a person. My question is, you know, there's the process of of radical self-love as challenging as it might be to experience in our individual bodies. What is the culture that we create that allows for that? What is it? feel like between you and I, when radical self-love is not only something that I experience in my own body or you experience in your body, Mm. but it's something that I'm inviting 
in mm-hmm. you. I'm inviting in others. What, do you have a sense of, of what that could be? What principles that might be guided by? I'm just curious. Yeah. I'm, so if, if it's appropriate, I'd like to presence our relationship a little bit in this. Go ahead. Cause, yes. Cause I do. <laughs> Cause I feel like, um, I feel like it is, it is a growing practice of this, yeah. right? Like, um, for your listeners who don't know, basically I was, Brentis and I had never talked or had a shared a conversation. <laughs> we had shared some That's memes true. and maybe commented on some Instagram posts. And I, I was told to send a message to Prentiss and, and ask for help around, mm-hmm. around my need to better embody the principles it is that I see externally in the world. How do I, how do I uh, integrate them into my, into my being on a cellular level? Um, and can know, I say real replied, quick? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I replied because <laughs> the second you sent that to me, I was considering sending you a message. In fact, the reason <laughs> I saw your message was because I had picked up my phone and gotten into Instagram and I was, I was hovering over your name and then a message popped up. So I just want to say that that is what was happening yeah. on this side. Yeah. Got it. So we summoned each other. Yes. We in did. that way. Yes. And so even in that, like, even that is, is the act of like what radical self-love looks like in relationship, Mm. right? It's that, Mm -hmm. is that there was an, there was a something in me that said call to this person. And there was a Mm -hmm. something in you that said call to this person. And in a moment of mutual listening, Mm. action happened, right? What I like to call, I talk about this at the beginning of the body is not an apology. Um, this conversation with my friend um, that that created the words, the body is not an apology. But what happened was there was a moment where all the historical ways of being, the historical, like, don't say that, that might offend them. The, mm, I don't know how somebody's going to receive that. All the um, reasons that we have for things, right? Where there was a moment of, being unreasonable without Hmm. acting without concern for all the reasons we have made a thing possible opened what I like to call a transformational portal Mm -hmm. a a moment to move into a deeper different relationship with each other and so the reasons the word the body is not an apology was your body is not an apology was able to come up through me to my friend is because we were being unreasonable, the outside reasons in relationship to each other. And so I think that the ethos of radical self-love in relationship is the practice of being unreasonable with one another. The practice Mm -hmm. of saying, here are all the reasons I shouldn't do this. Here are all the things that I shouldn't say. Here are all the things that I'm, how am I, you know, you know me, I'm like, how am I going to look? How will I be perceived? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And, and what it means to be unreasonable in relationship with one another so that the most authentic, vulnerable, pure versions of ourselves can be accessed because that is what radical self-love is, is our most pure, authentic, you know, generative, generous versions of ourselves. It's the reasons that we have that keep us from being able to connect with each other on that level. So I feel like that's that's the beginning of what it looks like in practice. 
That's wonderful. I, I really appreciate that. And I think I feel moved to say that um, obviously you are a, a brilliant and profound person. I feel like that's very obvious in how you show up and move through the world. But I think in getting to know you some, you are incredibly generous with your spirit, with your encouragement. So what you're saying about how radical self-love can become embedded in how we relate to one another, I really feel you living that. And oh. it's that is also profound. You, you say a lot of profound things, you write profound things, changing lives, and then your spirit, the generosity of your spirit is also incredibly profound. So I wanted to just Thank share you. that with you because reflect that. I appreciate it's made that. a big impact I, on me. I really appreciate that. I really and and that it's but it's that work first. What I'd like to believe is true and and has been tested a multitude of times, right? Is that what I know to be true is that that is my heart. That anything that's come out of my face is first my heart. What my work has been is to again remove all my reasons mm -hmm. out of the way so that that which is my heart can more clearly come through. I've been saying the same things for a long time and I'm in a moment in history where people hear me differently, but I'm also, it's not just that people's ears have changed. And I do think in this moment of contagion, people's ears have changed, but yeah. I'm a clearer vessel. Yes. More of my reasons have moved out of the way. I yes. am more unreasonable um, right. in my communication about what I believe can help us. And so I just hope to keep being clearer and clearer reflection of, of, my truest self, my radical self, love self. Yeah, that's my Maybe hope. Maybe so. <laughs> I love it so much. You know me. I'm like, it's time to ask you questions. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, that's why Eddie's giving a thumbs up. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Um, uh, your turn. Your turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On your own radical self-love journey, what have been the most sort of impactful awakenings and and then what are where and where where are the obstructions still what's still what's still coming away oh you want me to empty my pockets on the podcast okay i mean, I mean you, you don't have to empty all the pockets but you can take a few things out <laughs> okay <laughs> you know um years ago i so in the somatics lineage that I studied, we have these things called commitments, where we create a statement, basically, that we organize ourselves and our lives around for a year or two. Um, and so the, the commitment that I was working with was a commitment to give and receive love. And I came to that because I could feel that um, love was so conditional for me. I mm. couldn't give it freely. I couldn't believe that I was worthy of it. And so I made this commitment around giving and receiving love. And one of my practices to kind of help love permeate my skin, I started with myself. I would, <laughs> this is probably like 2011 or something like that. But I would sing Whitney Houston songs to myself. This is a I practice I did. Because there are no songs really about unconditional love for oneself. There are all these songs that say, I love you no matter what you do. You can do this and that and the other thing. I forgive you. I don't really care, right. but I love you. 
and there there are no songs that I know of, and I would love if someone listening is like, here's a playlist that would be great. But there were no songs that there I is a playlist. Like, you know, Adrian Adrian Marie Brown made a non codependent love song playlist. Oh, okay. I know about her other playlist. And I was like, that's a different playlist. That's for different times. I haven't. That is a different. <laughs> <laughs> that is a different playlist. Yes. This one is the non codependent love healthy okay. healthy AF love song. So. I'll send you oh, the yes. I have I, I have actually listened to that. But there's but it's still okay. love loving someone else in a in a external non code. Yeah, still external. So I was like, Got I it. need a song for myself. And Whitney Houston turns out has a lot of songs that if you just put yourself in the place of the person that she's singing to are really powerful mm-hmm. for singing to yourself. So I I learned a lot through that practice, just how my body, the tissues in my body initially rejected my Mm. lovability and so as I did that practice things in me would soften would open tears would come um I'm not gonna ask you to sing the song although that's welling in me what I what I will do (laughs) (laughs) I was like oh that's 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 a that's a desire that's coming up this will be the first and last episode No one what are some of that. the songs? Well, uh, no, I'm telling you, the flock. <laughs> what are uh, some of the songs? Titles. Um, uh, what's the one? Uh, you give good love. Yeah. All the man that I need. All the man that I, I need love is it. one. Um, uh, oh, gosh. There were a couple on the Bodyguard soundtrack that I can't recall mm. in this moment, but were giving me... Um, Mm. run to you run. <laughs> I was just Things about like to that. say that I was about to come out of my run face. to you <laughs> but it that whole process helped me feel what love could feel like in my body so that I wasn't trying to search for love externally and try to figure out what love was through relationship with other people mm. that I first mm. knew what it felt like in my tissues and that I knew then what I was looking for or I knew then what I was inviting and nothing short of that mm-hmm. sensation of sinking into my muscles, tissues, bones would suffice. So I realized that nothing short of that feeling that I had in my body would suffice in relationship mm-hmm. to another person. The other thing is that the thing you said at the top about creation and being related to the stars, being equally created. That was a revelation for me in my kind of Mm. radical self-love journey. I was like, oh, all these people telling me you should be more this, less that, you know, you're too much of this, too little of that. I was like, but I was divinely created the same way this tree is, the same way the sun is. And Mm. so my job is not to change, but to radiate, to shine, to Mm -hmm. be as I am. And then through that, through all of us radiating, we discover new facets of God. Mm. We discover new ways that God can be in the world instead of trying to control how God might manifest in the world. We might discover that. Mm. So mm. that was my journey. Mm. Whitney Houston and God. I love it. I just saw all <laughs> this when you said that. I saw these, I saw the fractals of a gemstone, right? I saw all the different mm. cuts and edges, like that those yes. are all of the different angles by which we can see and experience God when we That's allow right. ourselves to be in the fullness of the creation that is, right? 
Yes. Um, yes. That's, yeah, yes. that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, Thanks for asking. Yeah. You didn't answer my second part because you're not. What, what was your second part? What was your second part? Uh huh. It's like what things are still, what things oh, are still it. to be cleared, to be cleared on your pathway to radical self love. Do you see how my mind is an ally to me and forgets? I see. Things? It was like, chunk, 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 chunk. I saw you try to like Jedi, uh, <laughs> use the force. <laughs> you can't use the force against Obi-Wan. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I think the things that remain, and I would like for you to answer this question too, if you're willing to reveal that, if you will, mm-hmm. um, are... One, there's just the the maintenance of it all. It's like I actually have to be in practice all the time with myself in order to mm. tap into that place because the world does not encourage me tapping into a place of radical self-love. Yeah. It's actually not, you know, you don't drive down the street and see a billboard that's like, do you love yourself deeply? Because you should. You deserve it. I cannot it. wait. I cannot wait until whatever funding is coming right now for that international (laughs) billboard campaign. Yes. Name it. (laughs) Call it. Yes. 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 But as of today, that's not the case. So I have to be in a lot of practice to clear the system from all of the the shenanigans that I receive. Um, And then I think there's just like, you said something about our power earlier and when we start to feel the force of the power that we each contain, it can be a little bit, I think for me, I'm like, there's so much to express, to offer, to say. Um, And sometimes I get a little nervous Mm. by how much force there is in my creation and my creative power. So I think that Mm. just letting go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How about for you? That's a, yeah, that's so powerful. I said to someone the other day, I feel like a question that's been brewing in my spirit is, what would you do if you truly knew how powerful you were? Yes. You know, like just yeah. if you truly knew. And first, you would be, um, you know, I would be, I have been um, taken aback. Like, oh, oh shit. This, <laughs> oh, this is what, this is what I'm working with. Ah! Right. Um, and in a sense of, um, humbleness before it um and a sense of terror that like true that that um yeah a magnificent terror right like what it means to stand before something so vast and enormous um and for me like I feel the same relationship that I'm describing right now with the ocean right like when I stand in front of the ocean I'm like whoa right like this is this is massive this is wider deeper than i can even begin to fathom and it loves me so much that it gives me access to its waves you know Mm -hmm. uh and there's something so tender in that for me um i think my biggest obstruction is that i'm so i just you know i like to know my control stuff i want to know i want to know how it's going to turn out (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want to already, I'm like, give me the, I wouldn't. And there's this interesting thing because there's a part of me that does know how it all turns out. The very far projection, the part that knows that like, it turns out just fine, Simon. Mm -hmm. Like it turns out Mm -hmm. like the stars and the sun and the ocean turn out. Right. Like there's that part that knows that. 
But then I want to know all the steps in between. I want to know when we be supposed to make the left-hand turn, the right-hand <laughs> turn, how long I'm supposed to stay at this stoplight. I want the details, which is not my gift. Um, and I can get so caught up in the details that I forget the faith walk that it is, that I forget to be in the moment of, you know, like it's easy to forget what love feels like in the moment when I'm yeah. so future casting it. Right. Yeah. And so that part of what it is to be, you know, these, these beings in the future. And I've been talking about this a lot lately too. Blackness, blackness is already in the future, right? We already there. That's, that's the reason why we still alive. Like yes. everything should have killed us and hasn't because we already, we already made it. <laughs> so yes. right now yes. we're just living into that, which has already been ordained. Okay. Um, but in the being in the future, I can forget to be in, in the now relationship with myself. We can forget to be in the now relationship with each other. I can forget to be in the now relationship with you in this conversation, right? And so mm-hmm. we're slowing down enough to bring myself back to the now, back to yeah. the present, back to what is true in this. What, is, what does radical self-love see, feel, taste like right this second inside of me? Um, that's, that's the thing that I think is where I, yeah, the dance that I often find myself doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I, I just feel struck by, um, what you just offered. And, and one is that when we feel the experience of radical self-love, it's feeling the experience of our life in that moment, really allowing us to drop in to the texture of it. And then the reflection you shared to me, it, it occurred to me also that when we talk about, well, probably not you, I mean, I'll say me, when I talk about radical self-love, I think oftentimes I think about it as including the things that are hard by the world's standards. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about power, I'm like, oh, that's to, to recognize honor allow my power is also radical self-love. It's not only about including that which the world tells me is is a challenge about me. It's also about right. the the recovery and the use of my power. That is what yeah, I feel struck by. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the back to the, it feels like back to the analogy of the sun, right? It's like the sun is just the sun. It mm-hmm. grows things and it burns shit down. It does both. Yeah, It has that That's which right. is generative and life-giving and that which can be really destructive. And, right. but it's not out here tripping about, you know, like we trip about which one it is. <laughs> it's not yeah. tripping about which one it is. It allows the fullness of itself to do what it does. And I don't just have to be worried about the, I should be considerate and think about my shadow side and think about the things that are hard that the world tells me I shouldn't love right i think mm-hmm. what that does is when i do do that it actually um creates the illumination for the parts of my shine that have been dimmed mm-hmm. but what's equally powerful is to be in that which is my which is already my full beam already yes. my full light yes. um and yeah and it's to not neglect either it's not to issue yeah. one for the other which again puts us in that latter mentality where I got one's greater than the other. No, it's all asking to fully come to bear in the world 
so that that which needs to be illuminated in me that I cannot see or that I don't want to see can be illuminated. And that which is my greatest gift can also come forth. All of it. Brilliant. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you for sharing your light here. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for the way you are in the world. I, I'm so deeply appreciative of how you share and what you share and what you are shining your light on. So thank you. Mm, thank you. I feel really honored to be the, am I the first guest still? You are. You are. You are. I'm so honored. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for, yeah. Thanks for letting me be in this conversation with you. Thanks for letting, yeah. Thanks for letting me drop into a more authentic place to have it. Thank you. Finding Our Way is co-produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill. Co-production and visual design by Devin Delania. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is you listen to this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Finding Our Way. Thank you.